do the SNP leadership candidates have the ability to win? Do they have the skills to be able to bring the SNP together? Do they have the capacity to produce the internal reform that has long had to happen within the SNP? And perhaps above all, the ability to put forward the unquestioned advances and achievements of the Scottish Government um, instead of ending up feeling steamrollered by the small criticisms, legitimate criticisms that are currently wiping away all achievement. Uh, we look at that. We also ask whether Scottish Labour is ready to sweep up if SNP supporters begin to drift or find that they've actually got more independent supporters in their midst. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi chums and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast. And in the immortal words of Roy Orbison, it's over, it's over, it's over. It's, I'm not going to try the high note, it's over. No, not the SNP leadership election, but the book. It is finito. It is finito. I wondered where you were going with that for a minute. Ah, you see. Yeah, keep (laughs) you guessing. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. Well, it it got finitoed at six, completely finitoed at 6.42 this morning, having been up all night rereading the entire thing. Um, From previous experience, if you don't really do that, you end up when you get the thing typeset and corrections put back to you by the publisher, you start reading it and going, oh, that's a bit clumsy and oh gosh, that's a bit, you know, wrong. And you end up making lots of little tweaks that drives them crazy. So I thought <laughs> this time, just do it. Read the whole thing through, you know, 77,000 words of it. And that's, you know, I thought, yeah, how long can that take? The answer uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. is about 12 hours. Not that that's what anyone would need to read it, but if you're doing it, you know, in a pernickety way, changing things, checking them each time, God almighty. And I mean, you've got to say, <clears throat> it's almost like a sort of comical exercise because here I am writing about the case for independence <laughs> mm-hmm. at the same point as the SNP leadership uh, campaign and everything surrounding it um, has probably, you've got to say, has probably given that case, one of the biggest dunts it's had for some considerable time. Not that it won't be able to recover, not that independence is completely harnessed to the SNP's success, but you'd be, you know, you'd be mad to say that, uh, that, yeah. that there's no connection between the two things. So, uh, yeah, it's been a bit, <clears throat> not exactly like the fourth road bridge, you know, that as soon as you think you finished it, you have to start again because somebody else has said something else. It's not that kind of book at all, happily. It's not about the SNP. Um, but still, yes. Um, but it's it's a great it's a great feeling to have given the thing over. <clears throat> you finally look at the world and think, yes, I can go outside now and go for a walk <laughs> without saying there's 30 minutes for the walk and then you need to be back. Or, you know, having five coffees a day to try and stay awake long enough to stay with it. I mean, God almighty. So thank you. It is mm. done. It is done. Well, you see, unfortunately, that, that means you'll no longer be nipping over to the University of Dundee Library, and I won't be able to use you as my stealth person for returning, because I went up in the loft as we were, were, were flitting, and I discovered, believe it or not, uh, books that I took out of the Dundee University <laughs> Library over 35 years ago oh, when I was okay. doing research. Oh, yes. 
on um, the uh, cinema in Nazi Germany. So there we go. I'm going to have to go over there and fess up to it myself, or perhaps just leave them sitting in, in a bag with an apology in a, or in a note as I <laughs> run away quickly. Oh, my God. I was I couldn't believe it, but there they are. So if anything University of Dundee is listening, these books will be on their way back to you. Right, moving on from uh, matters cheerful to, to matters definitely more serious. It's been a, an absolutely incredible weekend that we've just gone through in terms of Peter Morrill's resignation and it, discussions is, for example, Andy McKeever said, can the SNP continue as this broadest of churches or has this uh, leadership contest revealed inevitable splits that are going to lead to the SNP splintering into its uh, component elements and um, shattering? Is it this the end of the SNP? Well, no. I mean, you know, the SNP, I'm trying to remember when you would say the SNP was formed. I should have this in my head. And for some reason, I got 1954, but I don't know if that's accurate. I'm sure I will find out quickly now. Um, but, you know, it takes a long time to become an overnight success. And I see that Alexander said, you know, it took decades to achieve something and, you know, a weekend to kind of lose it. I, I doubt that that's the case. Um not least of which because Peter Merle going actually does, uh, although it, uh, you know, it, it, it is causing a lot of anger as people who felt that they always knew he was the big problem and that for some reason, you know, that other people didn't um, are getting quite angry. The point is that there is now a clean sweep. Uh, yeah. It's not totally clean uh, or cleans are probably a very pejorative way to describe things. But I mean, it's not one that is completely devoid of place people from the previous uh, lineup. Uh, but but they are all in positions where folk basically the, the incoming new first minister will take a new team in, uh, probably get rid of quite a lot of uh, special advisors and people in certain positions and there will be quite a change within government. And then because Peter Merle has gone within the actual party as well. And and actually, despite the fact personally, I've been taking quite a few pelters online over all of this. Uh, you know, many of us <laughs> have yeah. been pointing out the difficulties that Peter Merle has caused for an open, vibrant, vigorous SNP for Many years, uh, I mean, I in the end had to post an article from 2016 that was uh, bemoaning the corporate uh, kind of conference that was being created uh, in in Glasgow, which required the Commonweal to organise an alternative gig altogether across the Clyde and the Science Centre, the idea space, to discuss all the blinking issues that should have been being discussed in the SNP and weren't being touched by by a barge pole. So. Um, all of that stuff that people have criticised within the SNP and have then, you know, found they're not getting any traction with and have just sort of wearily sat back and thought, well, I don't know, what more can you do? The Even to the selection of local candidates, which was basically st uh, steered from the centre, the conference agendas, which were heavily edited and became very sort of self-congratulatory 
predictable events, nothing like the old kind of SNP conferences. And of course, you might say it's naive to think that uh, these days you can have those kind of fairly easygoing, genuine sort of events. But still, all of that, the, the kind of way that the SNP was managed has, has suddenly changed. I mean, the opportunity for someone to come in now and to reset stuff internally, uh, particularly, is extremely high. Uh, so that's a possibility. The other thing within what Andy McKeever was writing is this suggestion that there are basically different political affiliations, which is what you might really have wanted to see more teased out about during mm -hmm. the leadership election between Humza Yousaf Ashrigan and Kate Forbes. And basically that, you know, it might be better for them all to go their own political ways in the same way as there are three shades of unionism. You know, Labour, Tory and Lib Dems in Scotland, um, you, you know, you could say there are three shades uh, of 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 nationalism. There's the, the SSP, there's the Greens and there's the SNP. But clearly kind of, you know, the, the SNP is the Leviathan. And that's the point, because the way that Britain works, it makes even an, an enormous minority, like 45 percent to 50 percent of the public in Scotland, it makes a minority have to look as large and unified as possible to be taken seriously. Um, it's basically the SNP has to, in the same way as women have to work harder than and perform better than men to get the top jobs. The SNP has always had to look bigger, look more united, look more ethical, more competent, more yes. argument free, which is unnatural than any other party to win a hearing. Um, so that I think everybody has understood that you, you kind of if you'd had two or three smaller parties which represented distinct political themes within the independence movement, the way that first past the post works would mean none of them got an MP and there yeah. would have been no attention paid to Scotland at all or the case for independence over these last 15 years. You know, it would have it would have not been happening at the Westminster level. So uh, I think people will always have that in the back of their minds that you you basically you, it looks good on paper, but an electoral reality doesn't work that way. Um, and in any case, the left right split isn't the fault line that's emerged during this leadership contest, though it doubtless should have been. It has been the conduct of the party and its internal democracy. And, and that, you know, is the thing that can now change. Yeah, because, I mean, if anyone wants an example of a, trying to break the mould of the SNP being the dominant political voice of the Yes movement, which it is, uh, those of us who would not be natural SNP supporters in a post-independence Scotland hold our noses and vote SNP because that is the uh, parliamentary electoral route towards achieving independence. Look at the, the lack of success of Alaba, who took the big beast Alex Salmond with them. He, he, that's his creation, a, a massive figure in Scottish politics, and yet failed to, to achieve any sort of breakthrough other than the fact of uh, two MPs uh, jumping ship from the SNP to Alaba once at Westminster. Um, but you, you actually make that point, though, that the, the, the SNP has been operated within that, uh, that, that framework where it's always the man, the SNP be like Caesar's wife and beyond reproach. But the SNP, you know, political parties are election winning coalitions. You know, they're filled with grafters and grifters. You know, I like that one when I came up with it. The foot soldiers and the careerists. The 
SNP is a political party. It is not the entirety of the Yes movement, even though it is central to the achievement of independence. And I think splitting it into its component elements prior to independence would actually be an absolute disaster. But again, it is that whole point is that I think that you've hit the nail on the head. This is not a threat to the SNP continuing to win elections and to forward with the case for independence, that what's happening in this SNP leadership election. This is a great opportunity for no matter who wins this, whether it's Hamza, Ash or Kate, to actually be the broom, the, the new broom and come in and change things for the better. Because for many people, the way the SNP conducts itself as a political party will be the way they will judge the potential for an independent Scotland to operate. I don't go along with that because I am not so politically naive to believe that it is that will be what happens. But many people understandably believe that the way that the SNP conducts itself and operates will be a representation of what an independent Scotland will look like. Yeah, they, they, they will. But I mean, the thing that's maddening about this whole thing is that once there has been one mistake admitted, as Peter Merrill has done, uh, basically the whole load of stuff gets chucked at him, the SNP, the Scottish government, and the independence movement, yep. the whole nine yards. And actually, this is, you know, very often what happens when there's been a tide being held back, a tide of criticism that finally finds its, 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 you know, the, its, its sort of gap in the dike and manages to pile right through. Now, just take this morning. I'm not saying everything that the, you know, SNP has done is brilliant, but, but my God, it is not worse than the British government at all. And there has been stuff that's worth looking at like the news about the minimum alcohol pricing that everybody thought was going to make no difference whatsoever and has been found by doctors that published in The Lancet uh, researchers today to have saved 150 lives per year in a normal year. There were COVID years that were not so normal, but even then the number of deaths was less than it was in England. So that, you know, there's been maybe 750 people saved um, since that legislation was introduced. Now, of course, you know, this this sort of stuff, it's hard to sound crowy about it because, you know, it's death and it's a horrible addiction. And, you know, there'll, there'll be other aspects of, of that larger issue where perhaps performance isn't everything you want. But that is a result in the small world that politics is capable of making a difference in. That was a bold decision advanced by the late Evelyn Gillen, who ran Alcohol Concern, and I knew very well. And it took on all the forces of the alcohol industry, many different courts to be able to get the go ahead. And it was a world first. So we're at a stage now where we can't even talk properly about something like that working because everybody feels on the back foot because of mistakes made by the old guard within the SNP trying to manage a massive party by basically having iron-like control over the entire thing. So, you know, sure, that was a mistake. Uh, the next person up is going to have, however, a real challenge unless they are naturally, natural Democrats, naturally collegiate, naturally mm -hmm. able to work through a lot of different sorts of people, able to kind of get to an SNP conference, which will now be a quite different place. And I suspect also a lot of people who are very angry on Twitter at the moment 
will then find themselves in quite a position because should Ash Reagan or Kate Forbes win, are they still throwing pelters at the SNP? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the candidates that many folk critical of pretty much everyone have championed online. So if these candidates win, which is possible, uh, particularly for one of them, then logically those attacks should stop. Will they? You know, so there's there's an awful lot that sits just ahead for, you know, the outcome of this election. And at least, you know, one or two of the outcomes should mean a different SNP that actually people who have got quite used to being, if you like, just critical will have to get their constructive hats on <laughs> and um, start to find ways to suggest how the SNP could now work better and what reform looks like and how that can be delivered while you still keep this ship going and you keep a government going. I mean, these are all tall orders, but actually all hands will have to be to the pump on this one um, unless, you know, there is only going to be acrimony and people just throw in, you know, pelters at the other side. There's a strong chance that won't happen. So uh, Laura Koonsberg on Sunday uh, actually talked about the, the, the potential for uh, acrimony continuing. Where, where was the, there was more than a hint that uh, Kate Forbes, if she became First Minister, wouldn't be able to form a government. And the second aspect was, was she even been elected as First Minister? And that's one that's been, been, been going the rounds. And I, I took a, a look at the numbers. All you have to do is gain a simple majority of everyone who votes. And I took a look at it. And all that has to happen is all non-SNP MSPs Labour, Lib Dems, Greens and Conservatives would have to vote for one candidate and at least one SNP MSP would either have to abstain or vote for that candidate as well. So it ain't going to happen. Yeah, I, I think cannot... we went into this last week yes. you know, in that uh, it's, it's, as I think, as I said at the time, you've either got Douglas Ross standing down for Anna Sarwar. Ooh, that'll be that'll be an interesting day or vice versa. You know, these guys would actually. And of course, Labour needs any further connection with uh, <laughs> the, the Tories like a blooming hole in the head. So there's lots of reasons why that might not happen. Uh, I, I'm not sure if there's any sort of third party type candidate that they would all feel they could support. But it would take something like that uh, to get those warring factions to kind of move together and support just one candidate. The bigger thing, of course, will be whether or not, uh, you know, the Greens pull out if Ash uh, or or Kate Forbes win. It does look pretty much like the Greens will pack up shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that happens, you're then in a situation where you can't guarantee unless they just continue to vote with you anyway, whether you get budgets through, how you deal with legislation and the possibility of a trip up somewhere there. Um, in fact, you know, at that point, the Greens could have considerable clout, more clout than they possibly have within yes. the formal arrangement, ironically enough. Um, the possibility of a trip up there that might just stumble you into a vote of no confidence and an election, it's there. I see there's also, you know, people now, uh, we're just in the land of everything, calling for a Holyrood election. You know, the, the, um, the new First Minister to show that they're intent on a total reset by moving directly to a Holyrood election. Um, I, I, you know, I, you can see, again, if you're just working in the world of logic, you can see that that's the case. 
the amount of effort, money, everything that has to go into holding an election is quite considerable. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if the public feel they're there at the moment. They might want to see the whites of somebody's eyes a bit more before they decide whether they are OK with the outcome. But there's definitely, you know, there's definitely turmoil ahead and there's going to have to be some some real personal skills and and collaboration here. And uh, I mean, compromise, negotiation, somebody whose personality is such that they can begin to knit together alliances. And you'd like to think a bit of forbearance from people who are supporters of independence while this, you know, less than savoury political process happens in front of our eyes. You know, that old one about not watching sausages being made or laws being made. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, this sort of situation is is not pleasant. But what you know, what's the what, what's the alternative? I mean, if we live if we live in a in, in a liberal democracy, which we do, you're either going to actually play uh, a little bit by these rules or you're just going to keep throwing your toys out the pram. Um, and it's fine. It's a free world. You can do that. You'll always be right. You'll never be able to be disproved. But you won't have moved on what we can do within our democracy one iota. And if you want to see, I think, where all of this leads, look across the shuck towards Northern Ireland, yes. where today, I think, uh, the DUP, in fact, even as we're possibly recording this, um, the European, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember which which group it is now, but it's the RG are actually meeting, very likely to come out in support of the DUP, who have said that they can't go along with the Windsor framework. Now, a lot of speculation is that they're a bit annoyed that the vote on all of this has been rather hastened along after initial suggestions that it would, you know, take some time. I think the vote is actually tomorrow in the Commons. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of folk would say, however, that the fact of the thing is that as soon as their objections to the Northern Ireland Protocol disappear, uh, they are then faced with the even bigger problem of uh, the fact that Sinn Féin is the largest party. And if they resume Stormont, once it sits again, uh, unionists will be sitting as second fiddles for the first time ever in the history of Northern Ireland. And that is such an unpalatable prospect that they'd rather be, you know, still ducking and weaving around with the protocol to avoid having to get to a stage where they sit up and recognise that that is now the demographics of Northern Ireland. So that's fine. Everybody can just sit throwing pelters at one another. And that's definitely what will likely be happening today, tomorrow in the debate when the DUP say they won't sign uh, sign up. On Friday, however, the vote, I think, will go through. They've, uh, Rishi Sunak's already um, invited over the EU's representative on Friday to sign the protocol off. So, you know, where does that then leave Northern Ireland? If, if these are the frameworks that we're working within, and they are, then we have to try to make them work as best you can. And with as much goodwill in this situation as you can possibly now recreate. And that is a responsibility that falls on everyone who wants independence. Yeah, because, I mean, the central question still remains, Leslie. I mean, that, that, that given the stance of the Tories and Labour's towards granting a section 30, how do we achieve independence? You know, I mean, to me, the only way to do this is build such a groundswell of popular support for independence that denial becomes impossible but but competent government yes 
But what sort of competent government? You know, I, I, I have a that, that just simply trotting out the phrase that a government's got to be competent doesn't fill me. You know, I get it. But I want a competent government that actually reflects the social democratic democratic values of modern day Scotland, a, part, a country that's rejected the Conservative Party since the, the 1950s, a country that rejected the Labour Party, even on Jeremy Corbyn, and is still likely to reject Labour uh, under the, the, the increasingly centrist and right-wing drift of, of Keir Starmer. So, to me, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's what should be focused on. And I think the two things could be done together. Continue, and the, the continuing electrical success is absolutely vital to it as well, as you said, because that is the only way that we will be taken notice of. And it may be a thankless task to continue to send MPs down to Westminster. It may be a thankless task to continue to send MSPs to, to Holyrood who see themselves thwarted by, by Section 35 orders. Section 35 order that would have stopped more than likely that minimum unit pricing legislation being brought into place, which mm -hmm. has actually saved all those lives and lives that were being lost in the most poverty stricken areas amongst men in the poverty, most poverty stricken areas of Scotland. And that's to me is the, the way to achieve it. It's a, a double a double strategy, but it's a strategy that's got to embrace the yes movement and has to be, as you said, bring the SNP together to continue to be that fighting force in electrical in electoral terms that it has been over these years. Well, you know, I, it seems to me still that if the the new whoever the new FM is has got to change the rules that were brought in to stop Joanna Cherry being able to come back up the road which fundamentally yeah. stopped any MP being able to come back up to Holyrood and just change parliaments. I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. It just happened that, you know, it was a Westminster election after the Indie ref. That's where the bulk of those new, the new blood went. Uh, a lot of them would be better used in Holyrood and want to come back. But it's hard for them to do that. They would have to just resign and step down as MPs, sack all their staff and then hope that they get a berth somewhere in Scotland. It's not the way Alex Salmond did it. It's not the way anybody else did it until very recently. If that rule change is changed, then it allows us, uh, people to make their minds up as to where they want to be. At the moment, the dis distribution of where folk are, are birthed reflects only that they're penned up there by the rules. Now, I'm not you know, advocating a mass blooming change around, but there will be some people, and I think Stephen Flynn is one of them, who who is is proving himself very well in Westminster. Of course, Absolutely. I've got to say all the time, it's easier to prove yourself in a situation where you're judged <laughs> by your ability to speak rather than your ability to govern, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it is not at all proven that someone who's a good speaker can actually end up being, you know, a good a good governor, if you like. But nonetheless, there are plenty of people who could make a pretty good fist of, of government. And that's not to say that in some areas of government, the SNP haven't done pretty well. And this is the tragedy of it, because you can hardly say that without people guffawing and, you know, spluttering out ferries or whatever. Yeah. One, you know, s some of the problems there have been are now acting like a viral contagion across the whole of the SNP's uh, performance. And I would I would like to see and I know this is really difficult. There's a point where you probably just have to let this process of change happen and let some new people come out the front. But I want to see some people fighting for recognition of the changes that have been made in Scotland over 10 years. I've sat steeped in it for the last four years, four months over this book. 
And we are in a very different place now in in expression of the different settled will in Scotland with regard to even the health service, which, you know, if you've listened to this podcast, you'll have heard it many times as is privatised to within an inch of its life across the border. Um, there are so many aspects of life, even if you just take our water supply, there's plenty of criticism you could pelt at Scottish water, but at least it's in public hands. Unlike the 19 privatised companies south of the border, three quarters of whom are foreign uh, companies, generally speaking, owned by foreign governments that would never be stupid enough to put a precious resource like water into the private sector in the first yeah. place. We you don't live simultaneously north and south of the border. So you can't see what advances there have been in the way that we work. And some of them were delivered by previous Labour governments uh, in Scotland. Yes. You know, the personal care, the change towards STV and voting, which is more fully proportional and meant Labour lost all its fiefdoms at council level. You know, and those should be counted in the tally because that is part of a different settled will in a different country, which is what Scotland actually is. Now, I, I expect my politicians, as it were, to be uh, coming out and, and, and profiling that difference in, in skillful ways, without kind of, you know, just grinding the axe all the time, but in skillful ways, reminding people all the time that we have a different country here with different ways of operating. And we are as far as we can, managing to move the dial on quite a yes. lot of them. Um, but what happens when you have, you know, catastrophic failure of trust within certain areas and then within the internal democracy of the party as well, is that the whole lot gets contaminated with this suspicion and mistrust. And that is not fair to everybody who's knocked their pans in. And that's right across the political spectrum into the supporters, the leafleters, the everybody who put their lives on hold for 10 years to try to get this thing over the line democratically, because that's how we hang. So that's kind of, you know, to be laid at the door of everybody who has kind of brought us to this pass. But that's the reason that we will get ourselves picked back up again when there is a leader with the capacity to pull things together and clearly mean what they say and start to showcase that difference every time they're operating. I would suggest also that the, the, the characteristic business of taking every responsible, responsibility for everything which cannot be take, done within de devolution. And I, I hear, I was listening to Gary Robertson uh, interviewing Ash Reagan this morning and she was trying to make the point that, you know, de devolution makes it difficult to get total results. That can sound weak. You're going to have to get better, everybody, at making yes. that distinction because it's real. And there's no point trying to say that you can control the whole of educational outcomes when it's completely dependent on poverty, benefit reform. And again, just by the way, five reports that were commissioned uh, into the connection between sanctions in the welfare system and suicides. Five reports that have sat on Therese Coffey's desk for about the last two years are now not going to be published. She's just doofed them all. An independent inquiry called by Amber Rudd in 2019 into the connection between benefits, sanctions and suicides. That independent inquiry also doofed. So nobody is going to get any closer to a reality which is 
this this horrible reality of of how damaging and and crushing the 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 the, the British welfare system and the hostile environment to everyone has been uh, and that is not something you can hug and say you can get sorted in Scotland simply by willpower and you know outdoing the limits of even the, the devolution settlement there's going to have to be some allocation of this is what's coming from 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 across the border fundamentally and stuff we cannot change and here's the bits that we have set for ourselves as room for maneuver where we ought to do much much better and make clear that improvements have been made here here I mean, uh, that's uh, absolutely, Leslie, because, I mean, when you said hostile environment there, immediately what sprang to mind was the, the latest uh, trip uh, by Suella Braverman to Rwanda, where she described that uh, the, the Rwandan deal is going to be a blessing for migrants. I mean, appearing in front of a series of photo ops organised entirely with client media, the Daily Telegraph, GB News, you know, the Express, the Mail, all sent along. It was almost like a Potemkin village, you know, where Catherine the Great, uh, her minister, organised a, a floating village, if you like, that was set up to show how marvellous the, the development was going on down the Dnieper River. And the minute that Catherine the Great left, it was floated down the river to reappear elsewhere. You know, appearing laughing with a group of children, posing in front of a accommodation blocks set to host asylum seekers, describing the homes as really beautiful, high quality, welcoming. I quite like your interior designer, she said. I need some advice herself. You know, and the telegraph gushing over it, saying these are townhouses that would be tremendous, no, even if seen in, in, in Britain. And what it does is not only is it just re repulsive in terms of its the photo opportunity. But it's absolutely repulsive when you actually analyse what the Rwandan government is like and what's like Rwanda is actually right. They, they stifle dissent there. Arbitrary detention, ill treatment, torture and official and unofficial detention centres, commonplace, according to Human Rights Watch. You know, I've said that the Rwandan refugees and asylum seekers being forcibly disappeared to return to Rwanda are killed. An appalling record during COVID with a failure to protect its own population. Funding M23 uh, rebels in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and forcing over half a million people to flee their homes, being funded by the Rwandan government. And that's where we are with this government. That's what's happening. And it, it does need to be brought to bear, as you did with what goes on with people like Teresa Coffey, simply sidelining the reports which actually clearly identify the results of their inhumane welfare system. Yeah, which just, by the way, included a BBC investigation that's, that connected 82 suicides to benefit sanctions. Yeah. So, I mean, I, these things, you know, anybody with their ha head half screwed on can see that these things are happening. And similarly, uh, Rwanda absolutely has all the failings that you describe. Even if it had none of them, the point yeah. is that asylum seeking is meant to be judged on an individual basis and has to do with the threat posed to a person in their home country, not their method of entry, entry to the United Kingdom. So the wholesale uh, putting on a flight of everyone 
in a block without those individual considerations, simply on the basis of how they arrived here, is in contravention of everything to do with trying to help desperate people. And and that's, you know, before it's the planes even taken off, it's wrong. Um, and that's the bit that, you know, is not going to be got around by any amount of weird, beyond weird sort of photocalls of the laughing. And the, it's the laughing, basically, that's yeah. the just there's something totally unnerving about the, the it's, it, it feeds back to that initial speech about the dream she had of seeing this this plane taking off with all these deportees, which immediately for so many other people conjured up utter nightmare because your empathy runs entirely to what she has just visualized and you see it in full clarity totally differently and the fact that she doesn't seem to see that is completely unnerving about her and this business of being able to smile and laugh as you try to kind of get this policy over the line that will eventually take the britain out of all human rights uh led agreements yeah. that were made in fact pioneered by the british after the second world war is kind of such a scary prospect of where britain is going it brings us back to independence you have to kind of get these arguments stood up that this is what being in britain is part of and this is why we need to get ourselves all our ducks in a row here and get back to the defence of the different outlook Scotland has because it just doesn't want that kind of government, it doesn't want that kind of cruelty, and it would not set up an immigration system that was a shade of what is going on south of the border right now. Yeah, I mean, and, and that is the, that's the key thing to continually come back to, and that's the vision that is actually required. And I'm just, I don't know about you, but I'm absolutely desperate to get through this leadership election and desperate, even though I'm not a member of the SNP, to have some decision made so we can go on with making that argument for independence and actually doing the best we possibly can within the devolution settlement whilst indicating quite clearly to the Scottish electorate the 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 way we always, always, I hate this, have to mitigate what is going on at Westminster? It is mitigation. It is mitigation of inhumane policies and policies which you quite rightly said the Scottish people as a whole, I believe, across the political spectrum would have no truck with. But see, like, if, this is what I would like to now see with the same level of energy that different candidates have put into um, attacks on, if you like, one another onto the structure of the SNP, all those things, you can decide how much you think they were justified or otherwise. But here we are. That same level of energy needs to be <clears throat> put into the, the structures of how the British state operates currently and and, and making the distinctions that that are, are are demonstrated by the different directions policy in Scotland has taken. And they are actually almost too numerous now to go through. But that's your job. You need yes. to keep showcasing that difference because we are walking in a different direction. We may just have uh, be experiencing a long pit stop. But, you know, every every. Even even, you know, the fastest Grand Prix does need a moment where people actually come off the tracks and have a reset. That's got to happen now. And then there must be clarity with the same level of 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 kind of insight that all the candidates have brought to different parts of the 
inter necessarily internecine contest they have been in for leadership. They need to direct that now outwards and get some really good organization and real internal democracy happening within the SNP. Yeah. And meanwhile, I mean, I don't know if you saw Ed Balls being interviewed by Andrew Neil, where uh, Andrew Neil said to him, is this an opportunity for Labour? Ed Balls was very, very interesting, where he actually downplayed the potential for a Labour comeback in Scotland based upon the fact of his analysis that the Constitution was the dividing issue in Scotland. And despite the internal uh, travails of the SNP, he was very, very, he was less than bullish on the potential for Labour. And that's the other thing I, I, I I, I, won't, I need to say is the fact that I, I think the potential for expanding people who would support Scottish independence, I believe, would be amongst those social democrats and progressives in the Labour Party who are dismayed, openly dismayed, at the, the, the rightward drift of the Labour Party under Keir Starmer, a man who, in his leadership campaign, promised the earth in terms of socialist policies and immediately reneged on all of them. So it's... Uh, and I can't see the Scottish public voting Conservative in massive numbers. So, I mean, as I said, as Mark Twain said, uh, reports of uh, the death of the SNP uh, may have been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, well, I didn't I didn't see the Ed Balls interview. I feel like I've seen anything except oh, God, yeah. <laughs> the endlessness of, of uh, thinking that you can kind of get on with something and then having some large event happen within the SNP leadership contest again, which prompts the phone to go no end. But the, the thing for Labour will also be that if there are people, you know, tempted to drift across, as I'm sure some people will be tempted to think of doing when it comes to the next election, who are they? I mean, this is a question that's been directed towards the SNP leadership contest, suggesting that if indeed 30,000 people left over gender recognition reform, there'll be guy few people voting for Ash Regan or Kate Forbes then um, because they'll have left. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that that's true, you know, so that, you know, the, the, the logical consequence of the departures and movements is an interesting business to to think about. But for the Labour Party, um, they've already got apparently about 40 percent of their membership that's favourable for an independence referendum, if not independence. Um, apparently, 25 percent of uh, 25 of their candidates at the last local elections were openly supporting an independence referendum. Um, if there's more people that come out of the SNP back towards Labour, ooh, do we think that mm. might increase? I think it probably would. Now, they may not join the Labour Party. They may be the people that just vote Labour in the end. But to get those votes, how is the Labour Party going to have to look? It's the same issue that has been thrown at people like Kate Forbes. You know, the question where she's saying, I'm the person that can bring, you know, most Tories over because they, you know, they approve most strongly of me as a, a leader of the first of the SNP in the same way that. Um, you know, if people are asked, would you rather vote for Rishi Sunak or, or Keir Starmer? You're going to say Keir Starmer, but it doesn't mean that you've got any intention of voting for either of them. So, you know, the 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 idea that that if you're going to be pulling over conservatives to become supportive of an SNP leader, it makes you wonder where the economic policy of the party is going to have to be. It also makes you wonder if there's very much point 
in that most Tories will simply not ever vote for an yes. independence party, right? So um, there's all these difficulties for Labour in looking like that they can walk in and sweep up what looks like temp- tempting loose matter, uh, people that have been shaken <laughs> loose by the SNP. But in that they were and have been for, you know, a, a fair old amount of time, people who supported the idea of independence, they will be carrying that view with them. And you're going to have to lean that way a bit in order to be able to keep them. So that's not totally easy for Labour either. I mean, everyone's going to have to see how this shakes out. It's not obvious for any of them, no matter how bullish their leaders have been at the tail end of some of these debates. Yes. So it's been an an interesting time, hasn't it? And there is an old Chinese curse, allegedly, which says, may you live in interesting times. And uh, talking of which, we're going to be nipping over to Belfast tomorrow for hopefully two interesting events at the Imagine Belfast Festival on Thursday. Yep. uh, If you've got anybody who's in Belfast or if you're in Belfast yourself, I think there's still a few tickets left for... uh, are recording a, a special podcast in front of an audience at one o'clock in a uh, in a venue that is uh, just in Shaftesbury Square in Belfast. You can find it all on the Imagine Belfast uh, uh, website. And then in the evening at eight o'clock, we're having a sort of debate debate with one another and the audience about the future of Scottish independence. <laughs> oh, God, so yeah. there we are. Yes, this is well timed, isn't it? I mean, oh, oh, you know, I'm up for it. I mean, oh, yeah. com- completely up for it. Uh, so. As I say, if anybody's got rallies or friends over in Belfast and they fancy, a, you know, a bit of a walk out, then uh, just get onto the website. And in fact, Pat will put the links into to the, the podcast here. So we'll see you there or your your uh, homies if uh, if they can make it. And on that note, we will see you next week, chums. <laughs> <laughs>